Welcome back to Emmaism, a philosophy podcast for students of philosophy, because that really is what we all are, seekers of knowledge. Happy Friday, and it's time to philosophize again. I'm back with another bioethics series. The last one, in fact, because I just ended my time being a TA for a bioethics class, and it was so much fun to teach. I'm just wishing my students the best of luck on their final exam, and this is for them. This episode is the first of this series that spans from human research ethics to moral obligations of start and end-of-life care, and there is content in between that, like influential codes and personhood, but the one you're listening to now is on human research ethics, so let's just get into it. I'm going to divide it into Nuremberg and just talking about that entire situation, then going to human research. First, Nuremberg, then. So, on in August 1946, an international scientific commission on war crimes of a medical nature, the ISC, met up to set up war crime tribunals. The 1946 to 1947 Nuremberg Doctors' Trial, U.S. versus Carl Brandt et al., was part of a series of American trials designed to hold Germans, 23 German physicians and ministers, accountable under international law for crimes against humanity, war crimes, and membership in a criminal organization. So who was Carl Brandt? The Nazis had a bioethic that was not reducible to individuals. Karl Brandt was the Nazi doctor and was trained by as a surgeon. He was the guy in charge of all of the research experiments that the Nazis did. He became like a son to Hitler in the Third Reich after being a refugee coming from France into Germany proper. Brandt was convicted for making arrangements for experiments in the camps. He was also convicted in the Nuremberg trials for being a part of the T4 disability experiment programs. This was a domestic crime committed against Germans in the German medical system. The Nuremberg trials went after him for war crimes, crimes committed during the war in occupied territories. The T4 program was a Nazi German effort framed as a euthanasia program to kill incurably ill, physically or mentally disabled, emotionally distraught, or elderly people. Hitler initiated the program in 1939, and while it was officially discontinued in 1941, killings continued covertly under the military defeat until the military defeat of the Nazis in Germany in 1945. So, I was Carl Brandt, and the Nuremberg Doctors' Trial was very influential for the history of bioethics. And it resulted in the Nuremberg Code, which was wrote, written by um, three American judges. And this gave a big, big warning sign to the medical profession. It was a loss of self-regulation for the profession. Why? Because it was written by the three American judges. If these are judge-made rules, then the medical profession was risking losing control over the core of what it means to be a self-governing, autonomous profession. And there are two things particularly about the code that really bothered doctors. One, that it was written by judges and not by physicians. And two, how could you do a study under this code with anyone who cannot give voluntary consent that we effectively need for critical studies often? We need people who are children, people with dementia, people in emergency settings, and people with cognitive disabilities to run studies, but they can't really give us voluntary consent as it outlined in the Nuremberg Code. This simply couldn't be the standing rule of ethics and, um, you know, uh, medical ethics because it was too confined. And it's due to note that none of this applied to the prosecution of Nazi doctors. Um, that would have been post facto. And so this code was an attempt to reflect ethics and law for the future. 
And in the realm of human research ethics, the Nuremberg Code was eclipsed by the World Medical Association's Declaration of Helsinki in 1964, which was actually later renounced by the FDA due to its unfavorable opinion on placebos. But the Nuremberg Code did admittedly create greater awareness of the importance of human rights in medical science among wide sections of the medical profession. But its specific role in international human rights law is modest in comparison with Helsinki and, you know, more significant declarations and acts, like the Belmont Report, per se. I will talk about that in a different episode. But the legacy of the Nuremberg Code shows the fundamental importance of a robust, organized medical profession that protects its independence from political interests and its ability to chart its own moral course, yet at the same time is open to the essential role of governmental and national agencies to protect the rights and well-being of human research participants. And the Nuremberg Code, you know, isn't really even um, actually um, respected by the U.S. government. And we'll see that when I talk about human research ethics right now. So official ethical codes on human research generally agree that Subjects must give their informed voluntary consent to participate. The study must be designed to minimize the risks to the subjects and offer an acceptable balance of risks and benefit. In this way, they mean that the risks ought not to be unnecessary or excessive. Risks must be offset by potential benefits derived from the research. And subjects must be fairly selected to avoid exploitation or unjust exclusion. And subjects' privacy should be protected, confidentiality of the research data ought to be preserved, and also prior to the research being conducted, it must be reviewed and approved by an independent committee, like the IRB. So, I mean, those are five general guidelines, just kind of big buckets to put things in, that, you know, are pretty uncontroversial. All of them, all of the codes that have ever existed have really agreed on these things. So, you know, makes sense. And clinical trials that try to adhere, they're supposed to adhere to these, um, to these pillars of human research. And clinical trials derive the strongest and most, most trustworthy evidence of a treatment's impact on human health. They're designed to test a medical intervention in humans. And clinical trials are typically organized into two groups, the experimental group, the tr- where the treatment is evaluated, and the control group, which is a baseline comparison. Clinical trials might be placebo-controlled trials or active-controlled. That means that it's either against basically a sugar pill or something that has been proved effective in the same realm, treats the same thing, and you're just trying to prove that it is more effective. Clinical trials also might be blinded or double-blinded. This um, double-blinded is the preferred effectiveness. Blinded is when subjects don't know, and it's only the subjects who don't know where they are lying in the experimental and the control group. And then double-blinded is that subjects and researchers don't know, um, both of them. It's just kind of like patient A and group B, and, you know, we don't know which which treatment group B is getting. Patient A doesn't know what, what treatment they're getting, and they don't know that they're even put into group B. Um then there's also that the fact that randomized controlled trials are even more reliable. This is this is even better than a non-randomized controlled one because it ensures that control and experimental groups have comparable relevant characteristic and it also minimizes potential bias that can creep into a study when researchers unconsciously assign preferred subjects into a particular group, control or otherwise. 
and I'll, I'll just motivate this very quickly with a personal example. So I was part of this uh, study for chronic back pain. It was a mind-body study at um, you know a hospital in Boston. And um, we like signed up. I, I signed up via email. They screened me with questions over the phone. And they determined I was a good fit for the study. And, you know, kind of told me that, all right, so we're going to accumulate more participants, then separate you all randomly into groups, and we'll progress on the trial. You'll get some kind of treatment or a placebo. They told us it's placebo controlled. And I was like, okay, sure, I'll do it. It's fine. So they randomize us. I get an email saying that I was put into group two, which is a different kind of like they actually tell me that this is not the experimental group it's um a the controlled group where it's not the intended treatment that they are testing but it's something else it's not nothing but i should know that i'm not in the actual effective group and i was like well the entire time it's not going to be effective cuz i'm not going to think it's effective you already told me i'm not in the group where the experimental treatment is getting put out and and learned um and you know you think that one's gonna work but you're putting me in the like a the mid group like no that doesn't work so it wasn't a very effective study but you know it's it is what it is so rarely if ever can a single clinical trial establish the safety and efficacy of a treatment um that's why phases um, are important to trials. There's phase one through four, um, and they go through starting from testing the safety to testing the effectiveness of long-term use. So phase one tests the treatment in a few people in small doses in order to determine safety, adverse effects, serious adverse effects, and that the phase one trials are non-therapeutic. That's important here. Um, phase two tests test the treatment in a larger group for further safety and preliminary indications of effectiveness. So, you know, it's not just dosage here, but we're also trying to see, mm, you know, is, is there something there that seems to be promising? And if there is, they'll progress on to phase three, which is further testing the treatment in a larger group to establish a f- efficacy and to, you know, compare the testing with active control groups where there's some other active treatment going on at the same time if there's a comparable one and you're trying to pr- prove efficacy or better than the other one. So after phase three, then the FDA would approve it if it's effective and safe. From phase three, um, it'll go into the market. After it goes into the market and there's been some people who've been using it for a while, they'll probably do a phase four trial, which is post-market, post-approval testing of the treatment to assess effectiveness and side effects of long-term use. So, you know, phase one, safety. Phase two starts to become therapeutic. Phase three, active control. It's already, you know, using a treatment that has been proven somewhat as effective and then Phase four is the post, post-market um, trial. And um, we get into this question in clinical trials of beneficence and placebos. Principles of autonomy, beneficence, and justice ought to apply to standards for human subject research. Beneficence is at the heart of the disputes about whether we ought to give someone a placebo or not, whether that is right. Um, the obligation to help or not harm subjects often com- seems to conflict with the aim of doing science. 
The use of control groups challenge our duty to promote beneficence. In randomized controlled trials, even with the use of placebos in phases one through three, physicians and researchers are in doubt about the relative merits of the treatment. So they're said to be in equipoise, um, rationally balanced between the alternatives. And so oftentimes, you know, people who are responding to this this conviction that the use of control groups challenges our duty to promote beneficence. They, we say that the physicians actually can't be guilty of violating the duty because, you know, they're rationally balanced between, you, you know, not knowing it does work and not knowing it doesn't work. So, yeah. A clinical trial is conducted to find out which of the two treatments or more is better for a patient and whether a particular treatment has any worth. But of course, this process entails that patients in the control group will often get less than the best available treatment or no genuine treatment at all. That's the placebo. Some argue that the permissibility of enrolling patients in such a study is questionable, since by doing that, they're being treated merely as a means to an end of the scientific knowledge. But many reject this worry. The doctor is also treating the patient as an end, potentially, by obtaining consent to participate in the trial and by ensuring the potential risks are commensurate with the potential benefits. The physician is at once fulfilling the primary duty of a doctor to the patient and the secondary duty of a researcher to the research subject. But in clinical trials, patients are randomized into experimental and control groups where they may not receive the treatment that the physician believes is best. But defenders of randomized studies contend that the doctors breach no duty to their patients. If the efficacy of the treatments being tested is unknown, that is if there's no good evidence for preferring that patient be assigned to one group rather than another, being in doubt about the relevant merits of the treatment, these physicians are in this state rationally balanced between, you know, the different groups. They can't be guilty of offering treatments known to be less than the best available, basically. That's the argument. And, you know, it still raises the concern about placebo. Like, usually if a, a medicine is making it to a phase three and phase four trial where, you know, there probably is an active control, the scientists are pretty um, confident that this can perform well. This experimental drug can do good things. So can the deliberate non-treatment of patients ever be justified? The widely accepted proviso is that the use of placebos is unethical when effective treatments are already available. And if there's an established therapy, the new treatment must be compared to it in an active controlled trial. This is what happens, though. Um, ethicists that don't know this might be living in the ivory tower. Um, but some argue that when the disease in question is potentially fatal, fatal using um, placebo controls may be wrong, even if there is no established treatment, just an unproven but promising one. So if we're dealing with some terminal illness that is, you know, very, very acute, um, then using this experimental drug might be even better than just leaving a, a placebo group and, and, um, with, with nothing, not even the experimental drug, even if we haven't tested its safety or effectiveness yet. So those are two views on that. Um, and clinical trials, we're, we're doing it about sick people and, and sick people are vulnerable. So there's, there's a question about research on the vulnerable and what is permissible. Um, the essential moral conflict in this is the, the duty to shield the vulnerable from abuse and its conflict with the aspiration to benefit them or society through very needed research. 
Therapeutic research is generally acceptable. It may put the vulnerable at risk, but it offers them benefits equaling or outweighing the limited risks. And it is important to obtain informed and voluntary consent from vulnerable subjects. Ethical concerns become heightened for people in poverty, children, institutionalized patients, and individuals in developing countries. And it's it's important to note that a lot of philosophers think that an injustice is only committed if the study participants are denied any treatment that should otherwise be available to him in light of the practical realities of healthcare resources available in the country in question for the people in question. So this is pretty interesting because we're limiting the possibilities for care to someone's country, which might be um, morally um morally insignificant because where people are born um in the world may just be random and it seems morally insignificant that the country in which one lives in should dictate their experience in um prolonging and living a healthy life but that is a lot this is that's what a lot of philosophers believe um so now I'm just going to transition really quickly to talk about some ethical transgressions by the U.S. government. So despite demonstrated awareness of ethical codes post-Nuremberg, the U.S. government still performed many ethically questionable human research. I'm going to talk about the human radiation experiments and the Guatemala STD studies. So the human radiation experimentation project came out of the Clinton administration in 1994. In the early and mid-1990s, radiation was a huge mystery to scientists, and they didn't know what radiation really did to others. One tragic case that demonstrates the lack of information researchers really had is the radium dial woman. The radium dial women were painters um, who painted watch faces with um, radioactive paints. They were young working class girls and women who for years were dipping their paintbrushes in radioactive solution um, and then putting that in their mouth and then painting the watch dial so it would glow in the dark. Their bodies decomposed while they were alive due to their radiation exposure, and the effects of radiation were very poorly understood, so work with radioactive substances were then just quite uncontrolled. Um, Then came this guy named Don Mastic, who was a chemist working on the Manhattan Project that had liquefied plutonium explode on him and into his mouth, and he survived. This created an imperative for the government to figure out how to protect lab technicians who were working with plutonium. And at this time in history, scientists knew from experiments with rats how quickly rats excreted plutonium and that plutonium was a bone seeker. So they wanted to see plutonium's effect on human beings, and so they decided to embark on secret human radiation experiments. Nothing secret in the government is ever good, but... Um, The University of Rochester was also complicit in this. They were one of the campuses that had a Manhattan Project contract. And there were people available at Rochester, institutionalized in the hospital, who could participate in these secret experiments. So... In 1945, a telegram for the, from the University of Rochester to Los Alamos reported three plutonium injections. There were 18 plutonium injections in total that were done to patients at Rochester who likely could not have given informed, given informed consent because of the greater concern of the government regarding the Manhattan Project's impact on worker safety. Other radiation experience like that at the Fernald School in Waltham, Massachusetts, demonstrates another case in this 1940s-1950s era of exposing potentially non-consenting individuals to radiation for experimentation purposes. 
For this experiment, Quaker Oats actually wanted to give boys in the orphanage breakfast cereal with trace elements of radiation in order to prove that their cereal was more efficiently going through people's bodies. Crazy experiment. But this came to light in 1993, and it was followed with a 1998 almost $2 million settlement. So... The National Committee on Human Radiation Experiments was created after Eileen Wellsome of the Albuquerque Tribune put a face on the public data of Americans injected with plutonium during the secret government experiments. In this article, it came to light that the government also, in 1993, intentionally released radiation to the environment without notifying affected populations. The human radiation experiments were significant for the history of bioethics because it revealed how the government applied medical ethics in practice. The government denied to secretly, decided to secretly conduct the human radiation experiments in order to sacrifice a few people, patients that were already suffering from other ailments, for the well-being of many who worked on the Manhattan Project. These experiments were secret because the government knew that what they were doing was wrong. The telegrams are worded in ways that reveal the researchers' knowledge of the guidelines regarding informed consent and good human research practice at the time. Yet, they disregarded that. So, the U.S. government is a transgressor of human rights, even just internally with their own civilians. But... Even further, they, they stretched that disregard in bioethics um, to other countries. So we'll take the Guatemalan STD studies. The, the need to find superior treatment for STDs in the military was a critical motivator for the Guatemala experiments. So during World War II, gonorrhea rates among soldiers, sailors, Marines, they were all as high as 325 cases per 1,000. So that's a very high... Um, case number. So in the 1940s, um, the U.S. Uh, went on these Guatemalan studies to test whether penicillin could be used to treat people's STD infections. And so the U.S. went to Guatemala because of many reasons. Prostitution was legal and prostitutes could go into prisons and army barracks. So when that did not give enough infection to test, they started to inject it directly into individuals. And um, I mean, I mentioned Tuskegee on here in my last bioethics series, but the guy who ran Tuskegee, Dr. Cutler, was also linked to Guatemala. In Tuskegee, though, the men were already infected with syphilis. The focus was to deny treatment there. In Guatemala, the people were infected with syphilis by the government, and treatment was given or attempted to be given, at that, and that was the point. The subject participation included commercial sex workers, prisoners, psychiatric patients, um, soldiers, children, basically everyone under the sun. There are about 1,300 subjects in international STD infections due to this, and children were quote-unquote only used for diagnostic studies. I don't know if I believe the U.S. government in that, um, but there were many methods of this. Um, and the, the, these STD studies, once again, demonstrate the U.S. government's secrecy and um, av avoidance of facing the actual good research ethic guidelines that were put in place. These experiments were completed on a public health service and NIH grant. There was a Guatemalan institution cooperation, which is significant because it implicated them too in the ethical transgression when they could have served as a safeguard for ensuring the well-being of their own people. These experiments also occurred during the Nazi doctor trials which illuminates the fact that the government was not attentive to the ethical guidelines like the Nuremberg Code that was tested to mirror the existing practice of the U.S. in a human experimentation. 
the president's commission in retrospective moral judgment, that's the kind of, that's the report that they decided to um, publish based on this, showed that the government knew that what they were doing was like, unacceptable. And there was an experiment at the same time in Terre Haute, Indiana, on syphilis, in which subjects did give their consent. So the U.S. knew of the rules. That's the point here. Human experiments have been a long part of U.S. military medical practices. They are provoked by national security concerns, and much medicine has been learned from at least some of these incidents. The Guatemalan STD studies demonstrated once again that the U.S. government not honoring the expectations of informed consent and good human research practice even though they were solidified at that point in history, and the researchers were well aware of the rules at hand. The U.S. chose to experiment in a population that they deemed less important than that which they were trying to aid. So in both of these cases, the significance to bioethics is similar. They demonstrate that even when there are ethical guidelines in place, the U.S. government has historically chosen to not honor the rights of individuals in order to protect and maintain the health of a mass of people they deem more important. So the country that developed the ethical codes did not honor them in practice, and that's pretty significant here. Um, Just to apply major theories to clinical trials and human research, uh, we'll start with utilitarianism. Utilitarianism says that there's a moral justification for conducting any particular um, clinical trial if it offers a net benefit for all those concerned. So that raises questions, though, like, is informed consent another way to maximize utility? Is utilitarianism consistent with requiring informed consent? And, um, you know, while you think about those, just think also about how utilitarianism is pro-placebo because it's cheap and effective and it determines which treatment is best. That's where John Stuart Mill might stand. Um, what about Kant? What about our friend Emmanuel? So uh, Kant would reject the use of a placebo due to the prohibition of using people as if they were mere means. Um, it also says that Coercing research subjects, deliberately harming them and deceiving them diminishes, if not destroys, their autonomy. And Kant would also say the heart of modern informed consent doctrine is, you know, from Kant, you know, from himself. Uh, it's um, the freedom to embark on projects of self-determination. So he, he doesn't think that the categorical imperative could even be breached to find cures for humanity's ills. Um, it's important to treat individuals as if they're mean, that as if there are ends and not means in themselves. Um, finally, we could turn to Rawls. Rawls, what do we do? We're trying to decide under the veil of ignorance. What should we do? Rawls might say that research efforts should be aimed primarily at helping the neediest patients, and it is impermissible to conduct research on the neediest to prove therapeutic benefits only for those who are better off. Rawls would condemn conducting research in developing countries to benefit only people in developed ones. Um, He would also be against clinical trials that use poor, desperate, and mentally impaired people to develop treatments for the rest of society. So it's pretty straightforward. We got John Stuart Mill, Kant, Rawls on the track, and we can see where everyone falls. So that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to take a look at my book, How to Excel in Undergraduate Philosophy, on Amazon and all other major bookstores in both print and digital. That's all I have for today's episode. Um, There will be, obviously, three more on bioethics, so stay tuned for those. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep searching for the truth.